Good morning. Good to see you all here. Proverbs chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. And man, the, for those of you that are new with us, you know, this series in Proverbs we've been calling Wisdom's Way, kind of subtitling it, uh, Finding the Good Life in the Book of Proverbs. And man, looking out over, uh, like we just prayed through, the world that we live in, it can feel like a little bit of, if not a fool's errand, an outright delusion to be looking for something like the good life in the midst of a world like this. That we would all gather here comfortable on a Sunday morning, coffee in hand, talking about the good life in the midst of all of this brokenness seems uh, like an exercise in, in missing the point. And yet, however, as we talked about in the first week of the series of Proverbs, this book that we've been looking at and will be throughout the fall was not written in a vacuum. It was not written at the height of Israel's luxury when everything was going great. The book that we're reading through was compiled and brought together when Israel was at, when, when, when the people of Israel, when they were at their lowest, when they were at the face of war and exile, of pestilence and famine, when everything was at its worst, that is when Proverbs was put together and given to people. And man, I, I, I don't know how else to, to receive this, but feeling like we do in our lives, both personally and at a corporate global level, it can feel weird for us to think and talk about something like the good life, and yet that's precisely what this book was offered for, as an answer and an invitation in the midst of what we're going through. Now, as we began two weeks ago, the series set out with this really big, grandiose vision that through wisdom, you and I can build our lives into the good life, using this imagery and these metaphors of like the Garden of Eden, that our lives can be built into something like this. After that first week, many of us walked away excited for this series, coming back last week with, all right, what is it? Give us the practical steps to walk in wisdom. What do I need to do to, to build my life into the good life? Or maybe some of us are still a little skeptical, like, all right, so if that's how it works, sell me on it. Give me kind of the, a vision for this kind of wisdom and why the wisdom that Proverbs is giving me is actually worth living into. And yet, as we moved into last week's teaching with my friend Pastor Lucas Parks here, the book didn't open with either one of those things, getting really practical or kind of a, a vision of Proverbs, of wisdom. It opened with a really stern warning of Proverbs chapter one, of the way of the wicked, the way of foolishness, the way of the greedy and the jealous and, and those that give themselves to a trajectory of what it calls foolishness that leads deeper and darker down into death. That's how the book of wisdom opens for us. That slow enticement to envy, greed, and violence. The, the whole point of that, that last, that first chapter with, with Lucas was taking what all of our lives are, kind of with the ambient noise of foolishness, and turning the volume up. This led to, for many, not just experiencing Lucas's teaching in a powerful way, but our response time. As many of us identified our own personal drift or being misled into foolishness, one of the guys in my discipleship group this past week, as we were sitting down talking through it, showed us in his notes where he wrote in all caps, I don't know what to do with my life. I don't know what to do with my life. You see, this is how many of us came out. And so we emerge out of chapter one of Proverbs asking, how do I ensure that I find and keep myself on wisdom's way from here on out? How do, and, and stick to it. Because if you're anything like me, as you look over your life, it is less of this committed, faithful walk on wisdom's way and this kind of cycle 
of like two steps on wisdom's way and then, oh, something shiny that pulls me off into the woods of foolishness. And I, I trip all over myself. And I, and I, okay, step back up. Okay, no, we're getting back. I find, okay, this is the path of the good life. And I'm, I'm gonna trek with wisdom. Here we go. I'm gonna be consistent and productive and fruitful and gracious and generous. But before I know it, I'm greedy and envious and selfish all over again. I'm right out there lost in the woods of foolishness and stupidity. That's the challenge that I think many of us feel coming out of last week. How do I not just find wisdom, but stick with it, build my life with this sort of purpose and intent? Because we end up finding ourselves lost over and over again. We feel like my friend Stephen Strigelak, back in college, back in uh, 10 years ago, where my friend Stephen Strigelak went on a camping trip and got lost in the, northern, uh, the woods of northern Arkansas for 24 hours. Stephen, like, his experience of camping was like backyard tent up until this point. And it left him uh, not only getting lost on the trail as he set out by himself, but uh, this being in January, found himself in the teens of, like, temperature overnight as he uh, was soaking wet because he had crossed the river that they had made their way through just once to get to the campsite. He went back and forth over five times, lost his pack, lost his sleeping bag, lost his flashlight. And the end, at the end of the night, here comes midnight, and he, where is he, where else, but wearing shorts and a t-shirt, soaking wet, wrapped himself in toilet paper to bring some sense of warmth and dryness, watching the back half of the latest season of CSI Miami on his iPhone 3GS. <laughs> All while a Bengal tiger prowled in the woods nearby. This is actually true. There's a whole story of people that get like tigers as pets and they get too big and they let them free along the Buffalo River in northern Arkansas. What was so interesting with my friend Stephen, though, is this whole story comes together is that later after search and rescue found him the following day is when they went and retraced his steps because that's what they're really skilled at doing. They were able to find that he had walked over the trail that he had set himself over too many times to count. In his lostness, trying to find the trail without the ability to find it, over and over again, he walked right over it. Many of us in looking for wisdom, this is where we find ourselves. That if we were to look back over our lives, we might step on it, but not even knowing, and then right back in it, we're off the trail once again. We're lost, and many of our lives, maybe not wrapped up in toilet paper on a 3GS, but nonetheless wrapped up in our blankets on the couch, just binging the latest Netflix thing, because Lord have mercy, we are lost when it comes to figuring out our way in life. If you feel anything like that today, if you're looking for the good life, if you're trying to get back on it or you're trying to ensure you don't leave it, Proverbs 2 is just for you. Because Proverbs 2, like Stephen's search and rescue team, is here to find us and guide us back to the trail, to the good life, back to wisdom. Why don't you join me in standing if you're able as we read Proverbs chapter 2 together. So we'll read this together. We'll pray for our time together. And then uh, we'll move into unpacking what we find here. Proverbs chapter 2 says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you 
will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, comes knowledge and understanding. Yes, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion and understanding will watch over and guide you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, those who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of their evil, men whose paths are crooked, who are devious in their ways. So too you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, she who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death, and her paths to the departed. None who go back to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of good and keep the paths of the righteous, for the upright will inhabit the land, and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. Let's pray. So, Father, we receive Proverbs 2 as your good words of wisdom, practical, challenging, and God, hopefully good news in the midst of our lives of wandering all over our lives. And so we pray, God, not only in this moment that you would help us to find wisdom, but even as we prayed a moment ago in in reflecting on, lamenting, and praying for this world where wars and earthquakes and famines and and, uh, hurricanes God, of injustice and brokenness, these things are the norm. God, we see that wisdom is not simply something to preoccupy ourselves with outside of those concerns, but the way that you fashion a people who can bring life in the midst of them. God, that wisdom is your answer to a world gone awry. And so we pray that you would shape us today, that we might be the sort of people who move out into a world of brokenness shaped by the goodness and life that wisdom offers. Help us, we pray. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and take a seat. Now, there's a little bit of an overview to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs being a 31-chapter book. little fun tidbit that you can bring up at the next party that you're at is the book of Proverbs. Our lives are defined or described as being our way, our path, or our walk somewhere around 120 times. Now, maybe you don't like to go to the sort of parties that I do where that would be something that you would bring up, but a little bit of trivia. Way, path, walk, over 120 times in in these 31 chapters. Now, what's interesting to our time today is 10% of those 120 times, actually a little bit more, show up right here in chapter 2. So 120, you get all of this use of way and path and walk, and here in chapter 2, it kind of takes that theme and brings it in and really focuses on it. Our passage today is about our way of life, the path that we walk over the course of our lives. It is practical words on how to find wisdom's way, what to expect out of the walk of the life of wisdom and where that path ultimately takes us. So for those of us who feel lost like Stephen, or maybe just outright confused in our lives, trying to find the good life, 
you know, as we move out into our weeks, we feel sometimes like the earliest humans trying to figure out mushrooms, playing a really interesting game of trial and error. You eat some, that's so good, we're going to put that on a taco in a couple thousand years. That one just like killed Greg. And that one just like, we don't know what happened to Stephen. You know, maybe not Stephen. Stephen's lost in the woods with the tiger. This one's uh, Horatio. We don't know what happened to him. He ate this mushroom and he's, he disappeared. He's, he's gone forever. You see, our lives kind of feel like that. We go into our lives and some weeks, some, we do some things and it goes great for us. Other ones, it like out, it basically kills us. And there's other things that we're just like, we don't even know what just happened. Wherever we're at today, Proverbs 2 is trying to help us find what actually is the way of wisdom? Something determinable, something trustworthy, something that we can live into. And it offers this guidance with three ifs and then three thens. So those first three ifs, if you like to underline in your Bible, those occur in verse 1, verse 3, and verse 4. You'll see it begins, my son, if you. And then in verse 3, yes, if you. And then verse 4 again, if you. Three ifs, followed by then... Uh, two thens, and then kind of one so. Uh, I'll explain this a little bit more, but just to point these out if you want to underline. In verse five, you see then you. So right, you have the if you's, and now you have a then you in verse five. Again, down in verse nine, then you. And then finally in verse uh, 20, so you will, right? So you have then you will, then you will, so you will. Now before some of you give me your little Bible nerd uh, emails, where you're like, wait a minute, verse 16 actually has a so too. You're right, uh, but the ESV shouldn't have translated it that way. I, that makes me sound super pretentious. <laughs> They're the only translation that does. If you've got some of you, I saw some of you walking in had an NIV. Your NIV doesn't have that. It actually has a much more helpful way to break this up, where it has then you, then you, verse 20, thus you, kind of helps follow through. Bible nerd stuff, some of you do not care. That's totally okay. Here's the main thing, the main outline of this mapping, of this if-then dynamic, is this right here. If you want to summarize all of chapter 2, is this is what it's saying. If we draw near to God, then God will draw near to us. Okay, we're done. So you guys can come up and do it. No, okay. Let's tee this, this out a little bit more because it does. But this is the writing theme throughout the whole passage. If we draw near to God, God will draw near to us. And this, setting this forward is not a, a, a prompting of controlling or manipulating God. But because this is God speaking, it's God's promise to us about himself. God says, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. And this is really, really good news. When most of us spend our lives thinking and acting on all of these ifs with little to no certainty about what thens may show up on the other side. If I get this job, if I move here, if I do this, if I go on that date, if I go on this date, if I invest in this, if I work here, our lives is a series of ifs and very little of them have any promises on the other side. And the good news of Proverbs chapter 2 says here's at least one big if that you, can, that you can bet your life on. If you draw near to God, he will draw near to you. This is the promise. And this also gets picked up, just to summarize that this isn't even here in Proverbs. It's actually in the New Testament. James 4.8 says, here it is, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And so let's, let's tease this out by first looking at those ifs there in the first four verses of our uh, text today. The first if shows up in verses one and two where we see my son, if you, 
And then what does it say? Receive my words, treasure my commandments, incline your heart to understanding, making your ear attentive to wisdom. You know, we could just summarize these quite simply. Receiving the words of God, treasuring the commandments of God, tuning our ears to the wisdom, right? Bending our hearts to God's understanding. This is simply the practice of, of reading, meditating, studying, applying scripture. This is just a simple way of, it's Bible. This is basically my son, if you Bible, and then he moves on. Now, a lot of us aren't surprised, hopefully not surprised, to hear this coming from a, the Bible, coming from a pastor in a church gathering on a Sunday. If you want to draw near to God, read your Bible. This is Christianity 101. Meditate on Scripture. Study it. Sing it. And don't just stop there. Apply it. The first if, the first way we draw near to God is giving ourselves, bending our hearts with an attentive posture to Scripture. The second if shows up in verse 3. Yes, if you... The second way we're invited to draw near to God is to call out and to raise our voice for wisdom and insight. We could summarize the second practice as simply prayer. Once again, this isn't anything surprising if you've been in the church for a while or been around Christianity, that the two major ways that we draw near to God are through hearing him through his word and speaking to him in prayer. We enter into conversation with God. That is how we draw near to him. James 1, 5 details this prayer a little bit more. Some say he's actually just requoting what we see here in uh, uh, 2, verse 2. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let them uh, ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to them. If you lack wisdom, what was just Proverbs chapter 1 all about? We lack wisdom. And so Proverbs chapter 2 says, draw near to God, pray, ask him for the wisdom that you need. And God generously will give that to you. So once again, like Bible, nothing surprising here, hopefully, if we've been in the church. This is the basic kind of Christianity 101. You want to draw near to God? Open your Bible and pray. (laughs) Read Scripture. Apply it and pray as you're in that process. Enter into conversation with God. These habits of drawing near. Now the third if is that third way that we draw near. We're invited to draw near. In verse 4, And it gives these kind of two different ways of of describing all being the same thing. Searching or seeking for wisdom. And searching and seeking for it like costly silver or hidden treasure. Whereas the first two were about practices, the third is about the posture with which we draw near. So we draw near with word and with prayer. And the way that we do it is a a posture, a setting ourselves to give all that we need. There's no cost of which I will will actually go, the, the ROI on this isn't when it comes to wisdom. Jesus himself, once again, kind of borrows this language when he talks about finding the kingdom of heaven. He describes it as someone who finds treasure hidden in a field. You see the language there who in their joy goes and sells everything they have and goes and buys the field for the sake of that treasure. So this seeking for it as treasure is a joyful priority that I'm willing to give up anything and everything to grab and get the treasure that is this wisdom, that is this relationship and experience of God himself. So the first two are practices. The third is a posture that covers not just the first two, but all of our lives, that we take on this posture of seriously joyful searching for wisdom. If you want like an icon in your mind, it is that of the euphoric kind of crazy prospector. 
There's gold in them hills. And he's out there panning for gold all of the time. People look at him and he's crazy, but he's the guy that comes back to town with all of the gold. Why? Because he wasn't leaving wealth and riches up to chance or luck or happenstance. He was placing himself in the rivers to find it where it was. And this is what it means to seek it like silver, is a euphoric setting ourselves, waiting and placing ourselves. Again, not leaving our experience of God and us finding wisdom to luck and happenstance or, oh, it just so happened that we found the trail, but I'm looking for it. I'm searching for it. I'm seeking for it. I'm not gonna sit by and let it find me. Another way we could say this is we take Jeremiah 29 seriously when it says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Now, on these three ifs, and there's a couple, there's two main groups here in the room with us. The first are for those of you that are newer Christians, maybe you don't even identify as a Christian or maybe just a younger person in general. You're kind of building up the life that you're planning on building. And, and hearing all this is really, really helpful and practical for you. Okay, cool. If I want to draw near to God, here's the practices and posture to do just that. Great. Give myself into rhythms of studying scripture and prayer, setting a posture where I'm looking for that, that I'm making that the main priority in my life. If I do that, we're good to go. But the larger kind of group of the two that's here are those of us who have uh, been a Christian for a while. And as I unpack these practices and this posture, maybe some of you have tuned out over the past few minutes. Maybe roll your eyes just a little bit that it's this simple. Because we've gotten used to, maybe even bored by, or just outright over the fact that these seemingly simple ways are the ways that God wants to draw near to us and that we draw near to him. You see, the reminder worth receiving here in Proverbs 2 is the life of drawing Godward, of deeper into wisdom, does not come with varying degrees of which we graduate and move ourselves out of that kid stuff. The movement of depth in drawing near to God is not moving on to some new thing, but a deeper same thing. Committing ourselves to working through it, even assuming that when there's a breakdown and when it doesn't seem like it's giving all that it, it used to, that the problem lies not with this, but maybe with something going on here. That maybe it's not the practices, but my posture that needs to be investigated. Now, this is super hard to believe in a culture where what we get sold when it falls apart is what is new and what is flashy, where new is king and convenience is queen. And so the second that there's a breakdown with, with my posture and me, I don't feel like I'm really drawing near to God, then what must be the problem is I need to go find something new to use. This is what happens with me in productivity apps. I'm a super big nerd for productivity apps. Like the sweetsetup.com, it's just a blog where guys geek about what apps and like systems they use for this kind of stuff. And I geek out about it. So it's like, you know, you've got the bullet journal, you've got getting things done, you've got Trello, you've got Asana, Things 3 is my personal favorite, Wonderlist until Microsoft bought it and had to like completely rebuild the whole thing from the ground up and now it's okay, but it's not as good as it used to be. There's the Ugmunk analog series that's a really good, so here's the whole thing, right? You've got Evernote, you've got Notion, you've got Bear, you've got all of it, and I geek out about it. But here's, here's the whole problem, what happens with Ryan, is I get into my cycle of work, and at some point there's just a breakdown. I don't feel as productive. I don't feel like I was engaged, and I'm like, oh, you know what the problem is? Maybe it's not like I just need to walk, or I need to like, you know, pray, or like just, you know, get into the zone, or just you know, like go for a walk, get a cup of coffee, or I just maybe need it, what, what can I do to shake this up? The whole thing is, oh, the whole system's broken. 
So this will happen. It's like, oh, and now I'm like, I moved over to Notion. I'm off of Apple Notes. And Notions is incredible. And now I'm, I'm, we're doing Trello, Sauna, Sealite. Like I want to move over everything. And I rebuild this whole productivity suite for Ryan. And then it like gives me this boost of like productive energy. And I start getting stuff done for like a week. And then I feel the same way. And then I have to deal with the thing that I was actually like getting in the way of my work. And then I go right back to the systems and structures that I had in place beforehand. Those were working just fine. The problem wasn't with the app. You know, Travis is here. Maybe he would say like, well, no, Trello, you actually should. <laughs> the problem is, is my own posture with my work, that that's the thing that needs to be engaged with and dealt with. And so often, I think, with those of us who have been Christians for a while, this is who I'm speaking to right now, that as we begin to have a breakdown in our engagement of feeling like we're drawing near to God with the scripture and with prayer, is what we say is, oh, what actually we need is some flashy new program, some curriculum, some guide, some thing that's going to just do all of the convenience and newness, right? That's going to do all this for me, as opposed to having a posture with which goes, maybe what's going on is I'm not seeking for it like silver. Maybe I'm not treasuring it, like I'm not looking for it like a hidden treasure. So, and I'm all for resources. I'm all for these sorts of things. But the question is, is that so often I think we jump to what's new when the invitation is, again, not a different something, but the, uh, a deeper of the, of the same things. Now, what I do want to point out is, well, let's see, just simply what these practices look like at Collective. If you're here, okay, how do I jump into this? The first is with Bible, with our integrated Bible study. On a weekly basis, what we invite our community to do is having a specific set-alone private time, personal time of meditation on, this, on the text that we're going to be looking at together reading the passage by themselves. This is on our Instagram, on our website. Reading that passage at some point before Sunday, spending time with it for ourselves. And then we move into our gathering here where then we proclaim that text together. And then we move into our discipleship groups to apply what we're finding within that passage together. So this integrated Bible study is one where both individual and corporate and smaller communities were working through the passage of not just meditating, but also applying and then also the proclamation. Like this is all going on together. So it's pretty simple, but it's a simple way of us making sure that we have a rhythm of engaging. And for those of you that want the extra credit, we've been stepping into a, a daily practice of meditating on a proverb a day. So being August 15th, we're reading Proverbs 15. And we're reading through that, meditating, taking one or two little lines that we're carrying with us throughout the day. I know a handful of discipleship groups, you guys have been texting each other, which ones stand out to you? And that's actually been engaging, so that one's for free. But then even beyond that, there's Bible, there's prayer with our prayer nights, there's pre-service prayer in this room before our gathering, there's our time of responsive prayer after and during our response time. We have these practices that we're trying to lean into what Proverbs 2 says, if you draw near to God in these ways, we can expect he'll draw near to us. And then here's the thing, though. At the end of the day, I can't do anything about our, my, you, you can't do anything about my posture and I can't do anything about yours. We can set up the, the rubric for these practices within our community, but at the end of the day, what we get out of it comes down to, are we seeking it like silver? Are we looking for it like hidden treasure? We can have all the practices and all the resources in the world, but if we're not taking the responsibility of searching for it, all, you can have the best things in the world and they're not gonna do anything. But, I, but here's the thing though, wherever you're at, Proverbs isn't bringing a word of condemnation for you today. Notice that nowhere in this is, my son, you better, my son, you oughta, I swear my, what is, if, it's an invitation, not condemnation. Wherever you're at today, 
My, my point is not to bring condemnation into this, but an invitation, an if that you're invited into of drawing near to God through these practices and postures because as simple as they may seem, these are the very way that God draws near to us. As we move into verse five and the rest of chapter two, what we find is the rest of this chapter details and describes the implications of when God draws near to us. As we draw near to him, what is it like when God draws near to us? The first then in verse 5 is we find ourselves having a new, a deeper experience of God. This experience that simultaneously happens but feels like a bit like a paradox. Simultaneously, understanding the fear of the Lord and having the knowledge, that is the whole self-intimate knowledge of God. Those two things, fear of the Lord and knowledge of God that feel like they ought to be paradoxes or at odds with one another the more that we have God drawing near to us, we experience both of them simultaneously. As we draw near to God through his word, through prayer, in a posture of humility and receptivity, that in that place, simultaneously, our humility, our sense of smallness, our fragility, our folly, and even our sin, our fear of the Lord, that will magnify alongside our sense of being loved, of God's faithfulness, of his grace and his peace and his presence, the knowledge of God and the fear of the Lord. If we draw near to God, this experience, this deeper experience of who he is and who we are will be unlocked to us. And this then stands as true for the new believer here as for anybody who's been with Jesus for decades. There is never a a limit to the depth of who God is and what he wants to unveil himself to and reveal himself to us if we are willing to continue to take that step of drawing deeper in and nearer to him. The only limit is our receptivity to that question, if. Now, the question, though, is, in this if, then, how is this not manipulation of God? How is this not us controlling him and punching all the right buttons? How is this not legalism? Ooh, scary word. How is this not portraying God as sitting off and waiting at a distance until we pull ourselves together? Because it can seem that way. Verses 6 through 8 show up to to shut down exactly that thought. In verse 6, it tells us that what is this wisdom and this knowledge that God gives us? Verse 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. It is not owed. It is not earned. The word give is is linked to the word for gift in, in the Hebrew here. The Lord gives as a gift wisdom to his people. Why? Because in verse 7, God's been storing it up, the language of like a savings account. An inheritance, right? You have like any of us, like, you know, grandparents that passed away and they've got like, the, you know, they, they were just well off, right? And then you got the, you find out the whole thing. They left it to you. It's in your name. It's just waiting for you to take out on the town and spend it. Verse seven says, God's been doing that with wisdom, storing up and saving it up. And it's got your name on it. And as you draw near to him, he's gonna open up the savings account and you can spend it all over your life, bringing wisdom and insight and understanding and knowledge and wisdom all there. This vision of God's graciousness continues in verse 8 that God it portrays him as watching over and guarding his saints. That's the, those two words together what describes a shepherd watching their flock. Attentive care, looking out for danger, looking out for the distractions, looking out for the things that might endanger his flock, those of us who are called here his saints. Those who have received the steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. 
So for all this if-then language, this is not God saying, if you seek me, then I'll love you, or I'll love you any, even more. But if you seek me, you will find me for all that I'm worth, for all that God has to offer. Your seeking has nothing to do with God's love for you, but but here's the reality, because God is a respecter of persons, it will impede or improve your own receptivity to his love and wisdom. Not the fact that he loves you, not the fact that wisdom's been stored up to you, but your receptivity of those things, your experience of those things. So the invitation is, if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you. Verse 9 then gives us our second then. So the first then is a new experience of God. Verse 9 then shifts to the second then of what happens when we draw near to God is we receive a new life given to us by wisdom. We change. We change. In verse 9, it says, then we will have this new life as we are given a new mind. This is a new understanding of righteousness and justice, of equity or fairness and every good path. Your mind will change as you draw near to God and he draws near to you. A shaping of the way that you think, you'll be able to discern what is right and true and good and beautiful amid a world that is false and bad and ugly and unjust. For all the conversations about what is justice, what is the proper uh, way that we should go about this situation or that, Proverbs says, if you draw near to God, you will understand and have the discernment to see what is necessary and needed. Beyond just thoughts and prayers, as important those are, you will have the practical way of how do we meet these needs. We don't just receive a new mind in verse 10, we receive a new heart, it says, a new appetite in our souls, that which is pleasurable or pleasant to us that that which is foolish and wicked and only leads to death will lose its appeal. It will not be attractive to us. It will not be pleasant to us anymore. Without downplaying it too much, it's a lot like In-N-Out. <laughs> when I'm on a road trip, it's like In-N-Out or, not, like, or no, literally or nothing. Like that is the only food on a road that you will eat. And so if I'm on the highway, there's like McDonald's and like Jack in the Box and all these other things. And it's not me like, you know, white knuckling my way to In-N-Out. Like, because I really need to do that, and I really don't want Jack in the Box. Like, no, it's evil. It's bad. Don't even look at it. Like, I'm, like, pulling down, like, blind your eyes from Jack in the Box. Like, it's none of that. It's like I will gladly drive by all of those places to make my way to In-N-Out. In the same way, <laughs> Proverbs is saying that as you have this new heart and a new appetite for wisdom, that what is foolish, it's not going to, ha- you're not going to have to white-knuckle your way, clench, st- don't do the stupid thing, don't do foolish, it's really bad, I don't want that. You will, you'll simply just go, I don't even want that, it's not even appealing to me. I've, I've tasted and seen that, whiz- that In-N-Out is good, and so I will take that double-double, animal style, with no cheese and extra grilled onions, and my well-done fries, easily, over like that nasty patty that they've got sitting for me, as appealing as the billboard may look. We don't just receive a new heart. We also receive in verse 11, new instincts, like a new gut, you could say. You know, you feel something on a gut level. We get a new instincts. Our lives are now guarded and guided by discretion and understanding. This kind of idea that almost on on us not engaging, but it is us, a subconscious level. Our lives are being guided by wisdom. That almost as our minds and our, and our heart are transformed, that we move through our life and we're not even having to pay attention to wisdom at, at one point. We just start naturally being guarded away from injustice and stupidity and, and folly. Again, kind of like in and out, it's like bowling. Um, I'm, I'm okay at bowling. 
And so if I go bowling when I don't have, uh, when I just go bowling normally, I have to be really attentive, like hyper-focused on like where I want the ball to go. And every now and then, you know, you get the strike or you get a couple pins, but, you know, it's bumper city, you know, population one, hi, how are we, uh, is right here, until we get those kitty bumpers up. And then Ryan's rolling, like unbeatable. If we've got kitty bumpers, like bowling up in the hundreds, I'm unstoppable. The idea here with the new instincts is that so much of our lives is us trying so hard not to get into foolishness and stupidity and messing up our lives. And the whole point is as we draw near to God and wisdom comes into us, our subconscious, our instincts, our gut is changed and these kind of bumpers of wisdom go up. So we're bowling and we're not even like really, like we have to tr- be attentively trying to get it into the, bu- like the, the sides in order to, to make this happen because it's just naturally what happens within us. So verses 12 and 19, what we've just, or 9 uh, through 11, what we've just outlined here is wisdom. As we draw near to God, we find a, a new life, a, a new mind, a new heart, new instincts. Everything within us starts changing as wisdom draws near. And this is what leads in verses 12 through 19 to a new trajectory, a new direction for our lives. In verse 12 through 15, it describes almost like it just copies and pastes from chapter 1. The wicked men with their perverse speech, right? And they're, come, let's go like kill people, right? And then at the end, it actually scares you because all of that violence, it says, is just anybody who's greedy at all is actually in that way. But now, it's not warning us about going this way. It's now saying, the way from those isn't our way anymore. That we, in fact, have a new walk, a new path, a new trajectory that does not go to evil and darkness with the way of the wicked. It now moves, well, we'll come back to that in a minute. But what's interesting in verses 16 through 19 is we're not introduced just to the wicked men, but also this new character. This this character whose story or their way is different but parallel to the wicked men. The wicked men who had corrupted speech, who forsake righteousness, were introduced to the forbidden woman who doesn't have corrupted speech but seductive speech. Not that she just forsakes what's righteous, but she forsakes her her husband, the companion of her her friend, from her childhood uh, and, and her covenant with God. So we've got these two characters now of the two ways that our trajectory is not, the wicked men and the forbidden woman. Now, the forbidden woman is this, she, we're going to study her. She is a, a major character in the first nine chapters of Proverbs. We're gonna have a whole week on the forbidden woman because there's far more going on here uh, than, than we have time for today. It's, it's really cool. Um, but, but a couple things I just want to point out. The first is even here in Proverbs, notice the acknowledgement that she is not just forsaking her husband, but also her covenant with God. This is just worth saying here that marriage within the Christian biblical landscape is not simply a promise between two people, but a covenant that invites God into that promise. That the adulterer is not just simply breaking off the promise they made to a person, but literally severing the relationship with God. The other thing to notice is adultery, and this kind of includes all of the rest of Proverbs, is that adultery is the most common example and metaphor of foolishness in Proverbs. Example and metaphor. When it wants to talk about foolishness, it will regularly talk about adultery as like the perfect way to like embody that. And will regularly point to adultery as the greatest, like a great example of what foolishness looks like on display. You want to find the person who's forsaking the good life for selfish, short-lived pleasure They are literally on a dead end in the way that they're running right now. Proverbs goes, the adulterer is a great example of just that. 
causes all of us to question. Because what it's going to do is not just talk about actual adulterers that way, but any of us who wander into foolishness, who pick selfishness and short-lived pleasure over the good life, is we might as well be doing the exact same thing. Now, the second thing, man, okay, this is, this is for collective. Those of you that are members are really, you know, a part of this. Conversations we've had over the past year. I just want to point this out. Adultery within the biblical landscape and even here within Proverbs extends beyond just one married person sleeping with someone other than their spouse. Adultery is not encapsulated purely within the legal ramifications of one person moving outside of their marriage. This is throughout the Bible and it's even here in the word uh, adulteress and in the word uh, the forbidden woman. Adulteress is literally the foreign woman and this is not talking about her, her ethnicity. It's talking about her being foreign from his realm of the right uh, expression of his, his sexuality. Similarly, the forbidden woman is the strange woman, the woman who is strange to him. The whole reference point of what's going on here is adultery is when someone, we could just take out the woman and make it about person. It is sexual expression with a person outside of the proper relations for our sexuality. And so the question then is, where in the Bible do we have the landscape of what that is? the first two pages of the Bible, and then as it shows up throughout all of Scripture, with one man and one woman in a promised covenant before God for all of life. That's the framework through which then adulteress, even when we're talking about languages of whether or not you're married, regardless of your gender, and as Jesus says, even in the Sermon on the Mount, regardless of whether or not it's with your body or just with your mind, all of these then are not a trusting in God with all of our heart and with all of our body, but a leaning on our own understanding, which Proverbs defines as foolishness. It does not lead to the abundance, the fruitfulness, and the life that you are looking for. Now, we're going we're gonna to tease a lot of this stuff out. We're, there's more teaching on sex to come. Yay. But here, here's the main point here. The whole point of what it's doing in these, these verses here in the back end of 12 through 19 is it's not just going, look at you know, those nasty people going down that way. The whole point is, for those of you who draw near to God, it's looking in the rearview mirror and going, that's not your way anymore. That way that descends into the dead end of death, that way that goes to darkness and evil and isolation and deeper and deeper fo folly and foolishness, that's not your way. Rather, it then gives us that new trajectory and destination in verse 20, where it says, so you are thus you will walk in the way of the good. You will walk in the way of the good. What The way, your life, it's the good life. So you will find the good life. And you will keep your paths to that which is right. For the upright, those walking on the path of righteousness, those are the ones who inhabit the land. God's blessing and him dwelling with them, that's Garden of Eden language. Those with integrity will remain in it. See, our way is not the one that leads to darkness and death and evil, but for those of us who hear that great big if over our lives and we take it and God draws near, we find the good life. We find a life that leads to more life, a true, deeper life. And so those of us who were after last week or just last week's teaching, writing in all caps over our lives or in our notes, I don't know what to do with my life. Proverbs 2 says, if you draw near to God, God will draw near to you. You will experience a new and deeper experience of him. You will have your life changed from the inside out, and you will find yourself with a new destination, a new trajectory for all of it. That's the invitation. But as we wrap up, kind of in these closing moments, I want to go back to the very beginning of our passage today. In verse 1, 
Well, all of this opens with this word, my son. So the question immediately is, so is all of this only written for men? Like, ladies, you guys get off the hook. Like, wisdom, this is more of men's work. No. Or is this even just for only one particular man? Who is this son? Today, over our time together, we've been reading Proverbs 2, as many of throughout church history, seeing this as God's word to his people, to Israel, men and women, that he calls his, those people, his, his people, my son. And so men and women alike, we can receive from this. All of us are invited to hear and receive the words of Proverbs 2. But without canceling that, alongside it, if we go back to verse 1 of chapter 1, what did we find these Proverbs? What are we meant to be reading these from the lens of? The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. So without canceling that first reading, this book is meant to be read as these words being handed down from King Solomon to his sons on how to be a wise, just, and good king. Handed down to his sons and his grandsons. The, the problem with Israel's story throughout the Old Testament was Israel's implosion, their exile, them falling apart because of the absolute failure of all of his sons and grandsons. All of the kings of Israel forsaking the paths of righteousness, them getting caught up with the forbidden women, this is, it's lit like right in here. If you read this through the lens of the kings of Israel, this is why they did not do this. And this is why Israel ended up being cut off from the land and being rooted out of it. So Proverbs is being written with this ideal son of Solomon, this one from the line of David, this king of Israel, this anointed Messiah to come. And every single one of them failed until great, 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 great grandson. We find him in Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, who not only received Proverbs 2, he perfectly embodied what we've just read over. What we read over with those three ifs that hang over all of our lives, they were almost a, a because in Jesus' life. That because he received his words, because he called out for it, because he sought for it like silver, that he was... That, his life was one of drawing near to the Father and the Father to him, teaching and reflecting on speaking scriptures, regularly praying, him seeking first the kingdom of heaven and inviting others to do the same. His life was marked by a drawing near. And for Jesus, identifying him as being more than just human, saying that from eternity past, he and the Father had been drawing near to one another through the Spirit in love. And so because of that, Jesus' life had no need for change. He perfectly embodied that, that mind and heart, the instincts of wisdom. This whole passage is all about Jesus as the right and true king who truly lives into this. The only difference was the trajectory, the destination of his life. Whereas Proverbs 2 is said throughout that if we draw near to God, we'll avoid the path to darkness and evil and death. To Jesus and his life, just the opposite happens. He lives the life of embodied wisdom, embodies all of this, and it doesn't lead him away from death. It actually takes him right to it. It doesn't take him away from the path of darkness and evil, but right down it to his death on the cross. Why the change? Why does Jesus walk down the path that he did not earn or deserve, the one that he, that by all counts by Proverbs 2, he should not have taken? Jesus tells us repeatedly throughout the Gospels that it was all motivated by his love for fools like you and me. 
that he walked down the path of evil and darkness and even death itself so that none of us, none of us are ever too far for this if to still hang over our lives. Even if our stupidity and foolishness has outright destroyed our lives and led us to the dead end, even to our deathbed, Jesus stands right on the path of death, there like search and rescue, waiting for Stephen to grab us and bring us back. And because of the fact that his story didn't end at death, he's not just there to meet us in the end, but to bring a new life, resurrection, wherever our life has brought us. And to enable us now to get back onto the path of wisdom, and even more than that, a full, true fulfillment of verses 20 and 22, where we don't just live and inhabit the good life now, but that it, it proceeds and moves into all of eternity, into the age to come. And so here's the great flip of everything we've been looking at in Proverbs chapter 2, because of the gospel is that before we could ever draw near to God so that God could draw near to us, God in Jesus drew near to us before you could ever draw near to him. To paraphrase paraphrase a handful of passages from the New Testament, you'll see them behind me. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that why we were still sinners, we could just say fools. Christ died for us. Therefore, he now stands ready and able to save even the greatest of fools, to the uttermost, those of us who draw near to God through him, since he always lives now to redeem and restore. First John says, we love him because he first loved us, or we could put it, we draw near to him because he first drew near to us. So then Hebrews says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of our faith. Jesus, like Lady Wisdom from Proverbs chapter 1 last week, crying out, saying, who will hear my call? Who will hear my call? Proverbs 2 depicts Jesus now as standing over our lives no matter the mess and crying out, come to me, draw near to me. I have drawn near to you in the depths of your folly and darkness and death. And I am able to restore you out of your past failings and follies and defend you for your future. So seek me like the treasure above all treasures. Hurl yourself on me in all of your need, and I will give myself to you in all of my grace. My wisdom will enter your mind, your heart, and your instincts in ways that you've never known. And that new destination and trajectory will sit over you. You will dwell with me in the good life, not just now, but in the age to come. If we draw near to him, he draws near to us. This is the great promise, and it comes with good news that even before you could respond, God in Christ has already drawn near to you. Let's pray.